read and in the truths of the Lord that are sought to be ministered this evening. Let's ask for that in a moment of prayer, our prayer of illumination. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for allowing us to be known as your children in Christ according to your gospel, according to your promises, by the blessing of your spirit and through Jesus Christ. We ask that your word, which speaks to us about your sovereignty and your saving mercies in, in Christ, may be a word that allows us, Lord, with your blessing to respond as we should, those who are called to be lovers of the truth, to show forth that in, in all ways, Lord, whether it is in the common days, the everyday walk of life, or in those special circumstances to which you've called us. So may you accept our prayers. May you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn to our scriptures to Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75. We read that portion of word to shed light on our look, our continued look at the third commandment, where we're called not to take the name of the Lord and God, our God in vain, and looking especially in Lord's Day 37 to the idea of whether or not we can swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. We'll take a look at that Lord's Day in just a moment, Lord's Day 37 in uh, the 51st page in the back of the blue hymnal. We're first going to read from the 57th verse of Matthew 26 and read through to verse 75. So here, as we turn to this portion of God's Word, Matthew 26, 57 to 75, we read these words. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Where, he, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward at last. Two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In response to the word, we look at our confession, catechism, instruction that we follow in light of the word. Questions 101 and 102, Lord's Day 37, page 51. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oaths are approved in God's word and were rightly used by Old and New Testament believers. Question 102, may we swear by saints or other creatures? No. A legitimate oath means calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to my truthfulness and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. May the Lord's word indeed be a blessing to us today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism asks the question of whether there is a reverent way to take an oath. And that is a very good question especially since Jesus says earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 5, that we're not to swear at all in the kingdom of heaven, but that our word should be good enough. And that when we're Christians, believers in the gospel truth, that it would follow that we would be lovers to the truth uh, to such an extent that people shouldn't have to worry about whether we as Christians can be trusted with our word, and we should be able to be seen as people of reputation, men and women whose word can be trusted. In common practice, oaths are not to be used because our yes should be yes and our no should be no. However, oaths are to be used at special times, and they are. We don't live in a perfect world, and because that's so, Oaths are needed. Oaths are needed at solemn proceedings. Though all are called to take such oaths as they stand in the court of law, it's the Christian who takes the oath most seriously because only he truly acknowledges the God to whom he's called swear and, and it's that God to whom he submits as he submits to the truth in the court of law. In our passage, we have many statements that are taken under oath about Jesus, the false witnesses, the faithful witness, and a frightened witness. In the very gospel where Jesus tells his readers not to swear an oath at all, Jesus himself testifies to the truth about himself, as the catechism would say, to the glory of God and for his neighbor's good. Unlike any of the other witnesses that we find in this passage who give their testimony before 
God and before humanity. So we're going to focus our attention as we're considering this 37th Lord's Day also on these testimonies about Jesus that we find here in Matthew 26. We first of all look at the false witnesses, and that's something that we see at the very beginning of our passage, don't we? That uh, as uh, these scribes and elders and the chief priests, Caiaphas, gathered together and the councils all together, they sought false testimony against Jesus so that they might be able to put him to death. The trial of Jesus is truly a, a, a cruel irony. It's a trial that's filled with twisted surprise. On the one hand, the trial takes place on a sliver of legitimacy. From the very outset of the trial, illegally held at night, the authorities baldly sought out false witnesses to condemn Jesus. And yet they know that they need at least two of them to agree. Two or three were supposed to confirm the truth. Well, they needed two or three so that they could confirm the falsehood. But they wanted to use that as truth. It's cruel irony. In order for them to be able to condemn Jesus. They find difficulty in this and to, until two twisted stories about Christ's temple statements come about. And the point about these falsehoods uh, and this, these false witnesses and the problems with them are twofold. First, they had a responsibility in a court of law, these witnesses, to tell the truth. Which is true in common life as well. But since they were in a court of law, they were bound to the truth because of the oath that the court rightly demanded of them. And yet they didn't tell the truth. And more remarkably, though, was the second problem. They knew that Jesus was innocent. They knew it. They knew that the claims that Jesus had made concerning himself, the testimony that he made, was true. They knew because they simply lied about it. They knew they were telling falsehoods about Jesus. It wasn't the truth that mattered. They weren't looking for the truth. What they wanted to do was condemn Jesus. They hated the truth. They hated the truth and they hated Jesus. Truth didn't matter. And that's the irony, isn't it? That you know about the truth of Jesus, and yet you're content to spread or to sit in falsehood, falsehood concerning him. It's the demonic way that even the demons know the truth about Jesus, but they seek to spread falsehood. It's like trying to rewrite history so that your point of view will prevail. Never mind what the truth is. You hear about revisionist history, where people try to go back and revise what has happened in history so that it fits with their point of view in life. When people hear the gospel in, in Christ, God ought to be glorified. People ought to turn to Christ in faith when they hear the gospel, because the gospel is the truth. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not something that's pulled out of the air. It's the truth. And, and a person ought to respond accordingly to the truth in faith. You believe in the truth. And they in turn ought to testify to the truth about 
Jesus Christ. Not about lies. Just like the creation around that testifies to the glory of God. The truth is clear. The testimony is abundant. The, the religious leaders saw everything that Christ did. It wasn't hearsay. Everything testified to the truth, to the light of God. Everything testified that the glory of God shone in him. And later when the soldiers come and they, they told the leadership that the stone had been rolled away at Jesus' burial site, the testimony of the truth of the resurrection was clear there. And yet the truth didn't matter. Fabrication is spread instead. Because what matters is hatred towards Jesus, not the truth. The truth is clear, but for many the false conclusions still prevail. And, and, and that is, that's that issue that the church faces. That's the reality that the church faces. But, and, and there's a temptation to despair of that. We get perplexed by that, but, but we should never be perplexed unto utter, utter despair. We're called to testify with the Word of God and with, the, with our lives that Jesus is the Christ. We're to proclaim the Word that Jesus is Savior and that Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to proclaim and testify that belonging to Christ and His church is more precious than anything else. It's foundational to life. And we're to proclaim that nothing but the Gospel can bring real hope, lasting hope, true freedom, purpose, and, and present it clearly. And yet not everybody cares. And of course we don't like that. We don't like when people don't care about that. But we must not be discouraged to the point of despair about that. Rather what we need to be doing is, because what's happening then, right, is that we're dwelling then and letting the falsehood dictate our spirit. We need to have our tr the truth dictate our spirit. The truth of the gospel. And so rather, we're to, we're to be encouraged that Christ is using us as his instruments to bring the testimony of Christ to the nations. And, and we can rejoice when by God's grace people do get the picture. And people do. And we must not lose sight of that. We know that people don't, but we also know that people do by God's grace. The false witnesses include the high priest himself, really. The false witnesses are approved by the high priest. Because like the rest of the religious leadership, he simply wants to get Jesus out of the way. They want a world without Jesus. And here again is irony for you. Here is this one, Caiaphas, who would go to the Holy of Holies, who would offer the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice before God. He was the one who was the, the very type of the one whom he is now condemning, who is the true high priest. Caiaphas was supposed to be a, a living testimony of the one who would come and make his position obsolete. He tears his clothes to testify what he thinks he's heard, a blasphemous statement. Never mind the fact that all these other people before him have been blasphemous themselves. 
They've been the ones that have been blaspheming the name of God. What about all those false witnesses that have come to testify? Weren't those false oaths a blasphemy of, of, of the Lord whose name was taken in the falsehood? And you don't care about that? No, but that's because they don't care about the truth. Instead of upholding the truth like the true high priest does, he, he's only worried about ridding the world of the Son of God and the Son of David, even when God's truth stared at him. Lawlessness and falsehood are embraced to rid Christ from the world. And it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand. Because that's still what goes on in, in the world in which we live. We live in a world that would love to somehow rid it of the sovereignty and of the salvation of Jesus Christ, of his salvation and his lordship, to act as if the world has no place under his dominion. The testimony of the sovereignty of the triune God, however, is clear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been clearly de demonstrated. It's historically verified, as is every mighty act of God in Christ. 500 saw the resurrected Christ at one time. God's testimony of what makes for a good and healthy family is clear. God's testimony of calling people into the church of Jesus Christ is clear. The commandments of the Lord are not only authoritative and clearly presented, but they are not burdensome. They don't, they're not there to restrict you. They're not there to take the fun out of life. They're there to make your life full as you serve the Lord, where is, which is the fullness of life. Calling from scriptures, uh, calling from uh, scripture exists to be accountable to family, to church, to home to community, to school, to be responsible. That doesn't come out of thin air. That comes from the Word of God. That comes from the truth. Where else does that come from? We'll reap what we sow. Only one way to salvation exists. And that is not by ridding the world of Jesus Christ. But it's in confessing him as that Savior. And yet any kind of lawlessness or falsehood that you can cite or see has this in common. Whether it wishes to admit it or not, whether it seeks to, to make uh, sheep's clothing over the wolf, it is trying to rid the world of Jesus Christ. But because it's false and because it's lawless, lawless, it simply cannot do it because it's not real. It's not the truth of things. And, and that's the comfort that we receive in this unjust court of false witness. They think they're going to rid themselves of Jesus Christ and they play into the hands of his father. Because you will not rid the world of Jesus Christ. And we can take comfort in that. 
in this unjust court of false witness and that we can we can take that into the world in which we live, in which you live, in which I live, that wants to do that very thing. Nothing lawless, nothing false is ever going to rid the world of the righteousness, the sovereignty, the love, the mercy, the salvation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because you cannot rid the world of the truth. The truth will prevail. And that's worthy of our testimony and it is certainly a consoling truth for our lives when we confess it. Now on the flip side of this false witness that we see is the faithful witness. I adjure you, well, even if we back up a minute, it says... And the high priest stood up after these testimonies were made falsely. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is a flip of this. Jesus is a faithful witness, not the false one. As the man who was like us in all things, sin excluded, he takes an oath in a court of law of sorts, which should be proof enough that such oaths are legitimate at times. The high priest calls Jesus to the carpet as if he had a right to do so. Jesus had remained the suffering servant of the Lord. As a lamb before his shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth, even when the soldiers sought his testimony in mockery. Prophesy, you who say you are the Christ. But when called to testify, he does that for the glory of God and for the good of those he loved. He testified under oath what he had already testified informally throughout his life, that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and that through his appearance, uh, that though his appearance was not what faithful or faithless humanity would perceive as glory. Nevertheless, what they were not perceiving in faith at this time would be perceived by sight at the time that he would come to judge the living and the dead as the faithful witness and judge that he would be. And so testifying, Christ was doing what none of the others that took oaths in this passage did. None. He alone was the faithful witness. He didn't fail to glorify his Father as he was called to do. He scorned the shame that the truth would bring. He scorned the shame that it would bring to him because he knew that this testimony would bring glory to his Father in heaven. And that's what mattered the most. And that glory is what we're called to bring when we're called to bring the truth in a court of law as well. We have the freedom to do so as no other. When we know that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, whose name you and I are called to confess. But of course, while we're thankful to hear about this this great, faithful, dependable Christ that way. 
we also can find in our own lives how we can miss the mark miserably at times. Maybe not in the court of law, but in the court of the world. We look at Peter, the frightened witness. Jesus had been the faithful witness to him as well. He said to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you. That was an oath. He used to say, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Right? Truly, truly, I say to you. Peter, I declare this testimony about you. For the cock crows three times, you'll deny me three times. A triple testimony against me. Now, Peter wasn't in the courtroom. He was in the courtyard. He wasn't in the council room. He wasn't inside that way. He was outside. But Peter was on trial too. And the world was calling Peter to account. They were calling Peter to the carpet. Nobody called him to swear an oath, but swear an oath he did. And it wasn't the chief priest, this high and mighty one, Caiaphas, but two nameless servant girls to start. What a contrast. Not interrogated by Caiaphas, but by two servant girls. Peter, like all of us in this world, was called to give a testimony. For Christ or against him? Deny the Lord or confess him before men? Be proud of him or be ashamed of him? He wasn't before the national tribunal, as few of us are called to be either. It was simply a simple servant girl who was his judge. Here was Peter, the one who cut off the ear of the high priest and the leader of the disciples, the rock, and yet the rock has turned to sand. The rock who was outside had joined the false witnesses who were inside. When we see Peter, we see ourselves. Rocks, disciples, Christ, loyal to the Lord in the end, but also those who feel the Lord, whose, whose witness whose witness, after all, is what it should be. Right? Perhaps we identify with Peter to the point that we see ourselves who, because of our self-trust, have lacked the courage to witness for the Savior. And if that's so, we also have to see also that Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Those words he spoke with an oath. Those words of truth. Certainly the words brought regret to Peter's soul. But that was the first step of his return to the Lord. And we pity poor Peter. And our hearts go out to him as we reread these words of Scripture. But we can also rejoice with him. His reaction was not that of Judas. His reaction was that of godly sorrow. His reaction was that of heartfelt repentance. Certainly he could have cried where he was, but cry where he was or cry alone, cry he did. The depths of his denial were matched by the depths of his sorrow which came from remembering Christ's word. The words of Christ had touched the heart of Peter in a way that they had to touch him. And it was a bitter lesson for Peter to learn, but learn it 
he must for Peter to be Christ's instrument. He had to first of all remember the truth of the word of Christ. He had to place his trust in the dependable word of the Lord and not his own word. If he was going to depend on his own word, well, see where that led. But to depend on the word of the Lord, entirely different matter. And that's no different for us. You and me, nobody is going to be an effective and a courageous witness of the Lord without without trusting Him instead of ourselves. Let His way be our guide. Let His sovereignty be our comfort. Let His sovereignty provide the increase. It's just like Paul would say, you know, I planted, Paulus watered, but the Lord gives the increase. That we seek the first the kingdom of God and and all these other things will be added to you as well. God calls us to faithfulness. And if we heed that call to faithfulness, God will make us the courageous witnesses that he's called us to be. After all, where we have failed, we take consolation in the fact that Christ has prevailed. Because it is, it's he, it's not we, who first of all is the faithful witness. couple of people who were closing in on the, the last days of their lives made this comment. Here's one. I commit my soul into the hands of my Savior in full confidence that having redeemed it and washed it in his most precious blood, he'll present it faultless before the throne of my Heavenly Father, and I entreat my children to defend at all hazards and at any cost of personal sacrifice, the blessed doctrine of the complete atonement for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. The other gentleman said, looking forward to the time when my earthly career shall end, I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will as the most important thing in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, in which were the usual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God. To Him I attribute any success. I may have attained during my lifetime. Such begin the wills of millionaires, J.P. Morgan and H.J. Hines, respectively. Does that surprise you? Well, rich or poor, alive or dead, in court or out, may we seek to bring testimony to all of our Savior, who is the first or faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And whether people believe it or not, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen.
Let's respond in prayer. Father, we are mindful of, as we look at this passage, we're reminded again of how marvelous Christ was. In Him we find the one on whom we could depend. In Him we find the faithful witness, perfectly, righteously, and no other like Him. We hear of false witnesses. We recognize our own weaknesses and sins in those ways. We could never be in that perfection like Christ truly was. And yet you've called us, Father, to love the truth. Whether it's in the court of the world, or in the court of law, or whatever solemn place where we're called to testify to the truth in accordance with the knowledge of, of knowing that we have this great God who knows our hearts. Oh, Father, may it be shown, Lord, not only whether we are in those formal places or whether in those informal walks of life, that people can depend on us and the reason they can, and they can trust our word, is because they also know that we trust in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And that we would never be ashamed then to be faithful unto Him in the testimony that we make before the world. Thank you, Father, for Christ and the one who makes everything else fall into place. Without Him, we are nothing. But with Him, we may know the truth that sets us free and we can walk in the paths of that truth for Jesus' sake. Help us, Lord, every day all the more to wish to be that way. If we rejoice in the faithful witness that Jesus Christ is, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth.